Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Dialogue. Dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue. Dialogue journal. Dialogue. Dialogue. It's the 50th anniversary of Dialogue. Welcome. These special Dialogue podcasts were recorded at the Spirit of Dialogue Conference at Utah Valley University on September 30th as part of the 50th anniversary celebration held that day. You can find more information about the conference and the celebration at Dialogue's website, www.dialoguejournal.com. In this session, moderated by Molly Benyon, Gabrielle Blair, Courtney Kendrick, Megan Conley, and Michael Austin talk about grappling with groupthink, Dialogue's role in addressing critical social issues. Thank you all for being here. Uh, I'm not going to go ahead and introduce the panelists because you have wonderful introductions in your program, and you can tell the people from whom we want to hear, so let's save the time so we can hear from them. Uh, there's only one thing I would add, do I have a little bit longer bios than we do in your program, and what is that Courtney added to the bottom of the bio she sent me, that she was published in Dialogue and it was a highlight of her publishing career. <laughs> so I'm going to have that one for sure. So <clears throat> we, get to, we get to deal with what's really important. We're going to talk about critical social issues and how Dialogue can help address them. Um, in my mind, it's the most important subject. The God I honor has made very clear that the only way to show love for him is to serve our fellows. Um, so this is the core of the gospel. This isn't the tangential, tangential to theology, tangential to critical history. This is the core of the gospel. And this will be a fascinating panel. Let's start with, uh, let's just go in order. Gabrielle? Right. You want me here? Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you'd like to use that map, you may say, right. Mike, you stay there, and you can come up here. Great. Well, uh, thank you, Molly. And I totally agree. I totally agree that uh, the core of the gospel is, is taking care of each other. Um, so I, uh, I want to talk about, I'm going to start by talking a little bit about the UN Global Goals and the Church's four aims. Um, who here has heard of the UN Global Goals? Anyone? So we came out with them this year, 2016, and there are 17 goals to transform our world. And if you want to look them up, you can find it at un.org. There's a Button that'll take you to the global goals and um, and and has a little button for each 17 and you can look them up. But they're really ambitious. They're things like uh, no poverty, zero hunger, uh, quality education, gender equality, affordable and clean energy, and on and on. Like just 17 very ambitious goals. And when you uh, dig deeper, it's it's a really well done program. They uh, you click on each goal, it tells you all about it. It gives you stats and research on what has been done historically and what we know now. And it, it tells you, gives you very specific targets that they're trying to reach over the next 15 years. So it's not just like a vague, we're going to save the world kind of thing. We have very specific things they're achieving. And they even have ways for um, anyone to take action. You can you know, click on a link and they'll tell you how to, how to support these goals. Um, I find it super inspiring. It's intimidating and like overwhelming, these goals, but it's like, well, they are really tackling some big things, and, and we can be part of it. And, and as you look closer, you're like, these are achievable. These are actually achievable goals, even though they seem like impossible. How do you rid the world of poverty in, in a specific amount of time? Anyway, um, so I was thinking about that and thinking about sort of the church's role in that kind of thing. And 
Um, I, the closest thing I could come up with that we have would be like the four missions of the church, which you could probably repeat with me like an anthem. But um, um, so we're talking about proclaiming the gospel, redeeming the dead. Um, uh, what am I missing? Um, Protecting the saints and uh, caring for the poor. And I remember it was used to be just three. We hadn't added the caring for the poor. And I was out with a long time, so I, I can't remember when they actually added the fourth one, but I'm really glad they did, because for me, it's really the only one that I find personally you know, inspiring. And in fact, I think the other ones um, really can't be done without this fourth mission. And what I mean by that is, uh, well, if you want to protect the saints, the only way to do that is to care for the poor. If that's the, really the only way that we're going to get to perfection is if we're caring for each other. If we want to proclaim the gospel, uh, again, caring for the poor, to my mind, is the only legitimate way to proclaim the gospel. Uh, my, we uh, host seminary, early morning seminary in our home. And so every morning at 30, there's like 20 kids from six different high schools in Oakland. It's, it's awesome. I mean, I should have issues with some of it, but I like the kids in my home. <laughs> anyway. Um, but, um, you know, we're studying the New Testament this year, and so we're telling stories about Jesus. And it's just nonstop. Wherever he goes, the lame are healed, the blind are healed, the, 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 the dead are raised. And, you know, that is his gospel. Uh, you see it in every action. If you want to proclaim the gospel, the gospel is caring for the poor, um, or those in need. Um, as for redeeming the dead, I'll be honest, my first instinct is to say, let the dead bury the dead. Um, it, for me, it is, I love me some church history, and I love, found, you know, I love family history stories and genealogy stories, but I cannot prioritize the dead or the living. And um, so one way I've thought about uh, redeeming the dead is thinking of those without hope uh, that are still living but have lost whatever their life you know, used to be, and thinking about how we can help them. And if I consider the refugees who have lost anything um, that is familiar about their life, have lost everything, and have lost hope, if we help them, we give them a place to live, if we give them a way or help them find a way to sustain themselves, we give them hope, and we are redeeming them. And I'm going to call that redeeming the death. Um, anyway, so really, um, as far as present social issues, I would love to see uh, the church tackling um, some of these big intimidating things in these very concrete ways that we all understand and we know are happening, or, or even just um, somehow officially supporting these, these UN goals, if that, if that makes sense. So that is what is exciting to me. Um, then it made me think about, after I thought about that, I thought about um, Although the four missions aren't necessarily inspiring to me, the, the aspiration of Mormonism really, really is. And it's bigger than anything really that's out there. And so I find it um, compelling. I mean, the idea that humanity is worthy of godhood, that is just huge. And I mean, I just love even thinking about it um, at all. Uh, we are potential gods. And I think we do a disservice to that aim because we focus on maybe pre-mortal life, or we focus on what will happen after we die instead of what is happening here right now. Um, my, my husband 
really loves this topic, and he came up with three things that he would like to see that really resonated with me. Uh, number one, instead of being fixated on personal sin, we should be fixated on addressing evil in the world. Number two, instead of focusing on the role of Jesus in taking care of death and evil, we should be intent on carrying more of that burden ourselves, and probably more than we've imagined before. I'm going to explain that a little bit further because not everyone connects with it. Um, but uh, the, the, the problems in our world, sometimes there's an instinct to say, well, I don't see how to solve it, so I'm going to just let Jesus solve that. I'll, I'll find comfort in that. And, and, we're, and I think we're bound to do more than that. Um, even something where it's a problem we've created ourselves. If we think of cars, which we love, but they kill people every day, well, we can't wait for Jesus to solve that problem. We solve it, and, and we have been trying to for since it's been a problem. We've created seatbelts, and then we create airbags and analog brakes, and now we're on the verge of all having self-driving cars, which all predictions say will virtually eliminate any car deaths. So we don't wait for Jesus, we solve it. And it's not just things like that, it's, it's cancer. It's, we don't wait for Jesus to figure out cancer. We have to solve it, we have to carry that burden. The same with human trafficking, the same with hunger. We, we need to carry more of that. And then the third thing is instead of being fixated on a future life after death, we should be fixated on the here and now and what we can do to improve the lives of all humanity. Um, so, uh, so then I, I, so then I started thinking about that even when we do good and we do something good, um, or we, we're trying to improve the world, there's no, there's no guarantee that we're actually doing that. So it gets complicated. So even taking something like feeding, feeding someone who's hungry. Say we have a family that we're feeding and we fed them for 20 years, and we're trying hard to do what's right. We're trying hard to improve the world. But then we find out that the food we've been feeding them causes diabetes. And with new research and new tools, and we go, oh, we maybe weren't solving the problem the way we hoped we were, or maybe we were causing new problems. And so then I go, okay, so then what do I want to have happen? And really, it's just, I want to use science as a tool, I want to use the church as a tool to, uh, to do the best we can with the knowledge and information we have, and then always increase that knowledge, always increase that information, and, and improve those tools. Um, I think of community, and we really like to point to religion as, as a provider of strong communities, and, and it is, and we sort of look to religions and go, wow, they still have these intense communities that parts of the world have lost, and so that's awesome and admirable, but I would say that community, that strong community, is really just a byproduct of, of working together collaboratively to improve the world. So, and, and using those tools the best we can. Um, so then I, I'll, I'll, I have lots of other speakers here, so I'll just end with, so what are we aiming for with this good work? How do we know we're pointing in the right direction? And uh, for me, that's a, a, an ongoing thing that I think about a, a lot, but I brought it down for myself to, okay, who is the God that is worthy of worship? Who is that God? What does that God look like? Um, and I want you know picture that God in your mind, and what does that God require of you? What does that God ask you to do? And I would say like in my case again, sometimes um, I feel like we're focusing on the wrong things. I, I can't personally worship a God that's 
obsessed with um, or fixated on exposed shoulders. Like that's not going to be a God that I can worship. But I can definitely worship a God that wants to, uh, that expects me to tackle huge problems. That uh, that expects me to, you know, push myself. Um, all the big problems. Those, those UN goals kinds of problems. That's the kind of God that I want to worship. And 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 lastly, there's, I don't know how to say it. Rilke, there's a poem by, does anyone know how to say this? Ask Michael, he knows that. Rilke, thank you. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure there's a crowd that's familiar with. I, I should also say, I'm not sure why I was asked to speak on this panel. I'm very intimidated by the whole dialogue scene. <laughs> I, I make my living by writing, but like little blog posts, not you know anything scholarly. Anyway, so you guys probably already know this poem, but it's beautiful. It's, I won't read the whole thing at all, but just that it talks about that we, um, when we, we fight things, we choose small things to fight. And then when we win, the triumph, the triumph makes us small. Um, and then it talks about the angel that would wrestle people in the Old Testament. And, uh, and then I'll read this last time, but whoever was beaten by this angel, who often simply declined to fight, went away proud and strengthened and great from that harsh hand, but needed him as if to change his shape. Winning does not tempt that man. This is how he grows, by being defeated decisively by constantly greater beings. And that's, those big problems, those in the world and the, the social issues that are so pressing, those are the, the angels, those are the greater beings that we have to tackle. We will fail, they will make us stronger, and we'll fail again, but we'll get a little better. And that's, as intimidating as they are, that's where I would love to see the focus. And um, 
And for me, as I sat there in that lecture, as, as I call myself a grandma millennial, I missed it by only three years, but I feel, <laughs> I feel more, more like a millennial than I do Generation X. Um, but as he was describing science, he was talking about how it, it, it thrives on criticism and skepticism and doubts and, and testing hypothesis. And those are things that I feel sometimes outside of like a mustard seed that we talk about in the Book of Mormon, we don't have in our modern church today. It's, it's, it's sort of a feeling like if you do um, yeah, proclaim that you have some doubts or skepticism inside of our religious dialogue, then there is some sort of a moral failing inside of you. And I have um, personally experienced this um, in my own life and my own community. And um, that is why I'm so grateful for dialogue and the peer review articles and the, the progressive essays that kind of challenge um, in a safe place or a place that um, is, is accepted um, for communities like ours that, that need that, that missing link between science and religion. Um, the second thing is, is a bit more personal. Um, as, as, a, as a writer, um, I find that I, am, I feel often very safe writing things that are kind of um, perhaps a little controversial, but when I have to get up and say them with my voice, it's a totally different experience. So here's an example. Um, just this week, uh, my brother, who's a professor here at UVU, asked me to, um, if I wanted to see him on a panel about the sanitization of the arts and specifically how that happens in our community here. Which at UVU is very interesting because it's not a Mormon-centric community necessarily, but most of us here at UVU, I went here as well, are Mormon. Um, and so the, the, the conversation was very interesting, but there was a professor in particular who um, wanted to talk about his frustration with trigger warnings. And if you don't know what a trigger warning is, basically in social media when you want to say something that's sort of um, perhaps um, controversial or um, that could, could um, bring up some very sensitive or um, uh, traumatic uh, emotions in, in a reader, you tell them ahead of time, like for instance, trigger warning, this is about rape or whatever, and then you continue on with your post. And there's been some debate. There's, there was a great um, article in The Atlantic about the problem with trigger warnings and how they're kind of making panties out of students, um, college students, because they don't want to tackle. When they see that trigger warning, they decide they don't want to tackle the hard issues. Um, the problem is, is when we conflate people who are offended with people who have actually experienced trauma. Anyway, as this man was talking, it just, it just became so apparent to me that he was uh, absolutely unaware of the fact that he himself was less likely to experience sexual um, rape or um, sexual assault because he's a male, and also because he's a white male, um, he uh, wasn't most likely he wasn't likely to be targeted for his race. And he continued on and on and on until finally. I got that old Mormon feeling of the heart thumping and <laughs> the face went red and I was like, oh no, I'm getting, the Spirit's telling me I have to bear my testimony. And um, I, I, was, I was so nervous and, um, and during the Q&A period I, I let a few questions go and then finally I raised my hand and said, could you concede the point that you're coming from 
white male privilege, and um, he was totally shocked and taken back. And then we had this very awkward exchange, and I went home and I was like, that was the worst thing that I've experienced in a long time. I couldn't, I couldn't let it go. I had to text all my, my Mormon feminist friends. You know, what did I do wrong? What was, what was, um, what was, what was wrong in my approach? How can I, um, how can I say these things without so, so much, with, without my passion running over? And, um, and they were great and validating. But the truth is, is that I'm first and foremost a writer. And um, to have spaces like dialogue where I can say these things and I can say them in a way that feels um, like native to me in my own native language is so, so important. And, um, and I'm so grateful for that. And so the day when I did um, have my uh, post published, my essay published in dialogue, it was about um, Kate Kelly and that communications with a letter to my, to my daughters. Um, we broke out the Martinelli's and <laughs> we had a good old Mormon writer celebration at my house. And um, so I, I want to express my gratitude on those two points, specifically for dialogue and their uh, ability to address social issues.
and he never really liked casserole anyways. <laughs> um, so I thought, there's my talk. But that's kind of a gross simplification. Um, I'll let the academics defend themselves, but I'll spend some time on the women. Um, I don't actually know very many women who see things in just lightness and darkness, and I don't remember the last time one of them served me a casserole. So maybe my talk was there. I can stand here as the everyday Mormon woman, of which I feel I'm a good cross-section. The one that questions what she hears over the pulpit but stays. The one that puts on her garments and hopes for a better understanding someday. The one that agitates in her heart rather than in the streets. The one that believes fiercely in much of it and is passionately disheartened by the rest. The kind of woman I meet in loud gatherings and across quiet emails every day. And now that I mention that, that sounds kind of radical. Maybe we're not everyday Mormon women. Maybe there's no such thing. So I'll talk about that. I'll talk about the kind of woman I am, maybe how it feels to be a feminist in a patriarchal faith. But then that's complicated for me, too. Also, I need Cory to do a better job. But I've been told by people who know, the people who know, that I'm not quite feminist enough to claim the title. And of course, I've been told by the other people who know that I am too much of a feminist to claim many other titles. <laughs> and the fact that both groups of knowing people come from within my faith tradition makes my head spin a little faster than it generally does on its own. And I'm honestly too morning sick right now to deal with that graphical poll. <laughs> so, I don't have the research. I don't have the other every day. And as many will tell you, probably as they walk out those doors, I do not have the right. I've just got a feeling. My head is where it usually is, stretching up until it cracks off the top of my house. Bricks crumble, plaster falls, and that old roof is suddenly just a hat with shingles. And I think maybe that's all it ever was. And then wonder briefly if the roof on my head will still protect my children from the rain. My neck continues pushing upward until all I see is black and bright, and all I breathe is stardust. And when I look below me, I can see what I do, and the space that surrounds me, I can feel what I don't know. And I would make a pun about it being a heady experience for you guys. <laughs> I've got a feeling about the individual lights that carve my individual world out of the darkness. I've got a feeling that theology matters because the questions we ask our sacred texts are nearly as important as the answers they give. I've got a feeling that while the canon and the documents that support it may change over the years, while this may be par for the course even, we've got a big problem if many of those changes work to a woman in the place a narrative would have them, rather than the place God would have them. We do not have to trust change that obscures truth or heritage. I've got a feeling that I need women to plant their feet on the ashes of their hearthstones and declare themselves priestesses of their working temples, acolytes of their God. I've got a feeling that there are plenty dirtying their souls doing just that in the present, the past, and the future. I can feel connected across the air that I breathe. I've got a feeling that women, the woman labors until we are each of us born of her in a flood of water and blood and spirit. And I wonder, I wonder, I wonder how this is often lost as a sign and a token and an ordinance and a covenant and a marker of she who is only holy and she who can speak and we who should listen. I've got a feeling that my sisters, the women who gather around tables after children have gone to bed, the women who ask, you too, on quiet car rides after long talks, the women who read and pray and study and nurture and ache and bleed and burn and balm have really been prophetesses and priestesses all along. I've got a feeling that when rights are lost, wrongs are embraced. I've got a feeling about the things I think I am superior to, 
the, modern, the folklore of modern Mormon culture that I am sure I have grown beyond. Okay, guys, hear me out. This is just an example, but oils. Those oils, the ones that are tied up with MLMs and the huge conferences and the snide remarks on Facebook. Um, my academic friends are not the only ones guilty of those remarks, just in case you wonder. Um, but I hear a lot about these silly women who cure illness with lavender. And between you and me, I don't really believe in that stuff either. And this is all between us, right? <laughs> um, and at my worst, I've laughed about it too. But then at my best, I've cried. Because do you remember, brothers and sisters, that there was a time when we women were instructed to heal with the holy anointing oil? And has it occurred to none of us that maybe our sisters bathe their children with lavender because some ancestral memory moves their hands from child to oil and back to child again, that good things left behind will follow? And that a religion that began by embracing folk ways cannot purge them or the women who would extract power from them as easily as we all hoped. Why did we hope for that? What if we gave our sisters back the oil of the tree? What healing would happen then? I've got a feeling that I could be all wrong about all sorts of things and that is all right. I've got a feeling that I'm safe with my God and safe with your God too. I've got a feeling that my Mormonism, my truth, my pull into the eternities, my push into the present, cannot, should not be separated from yours. That we can do this together, that we must do this together. That our dissonance makes a wild noise, heavenly beings will tune until we match their celestial pitch. I've got a feeling that we can decide there are some truths worth shattering over, or we can decide there are some comforts worth building upon. I've got a feeling that I'm not going to be ashamed of my feelings that I'm going to say the things the Spirit gives me with the authority of a daughter created in the likeness of her mother. That there is progression between kingdoms, for example. That the Spirit is a she. And that we should probably give the directions of the word of wisdom and everything else at once over outside of talking points once in a while. None of my personal interests reside in that one, <laughs> I've got a feeling that there are many narratives for few truths and that I need to choose the ones that bring me closest to the light. I've got a feeling that I'm going to plant my feet on the ashes of my hearthstone and raise my hands to God. I've got a feeling that my birthright is my authority, and my authority is my birthright. And I've got a feeling that maybe none of these things really matter. That the stardust will accumulate in my nostrils and the grass will grow around my toes until I've forgotten about the blood that connects my head to my feet. I'll grow quiet and still and cold. And then, then, Warmed by the fire, I forgot I held in my hands, my heart would beat again. I know I will finally know what I did not know. I've got a feeling we are here to be loved, and to love, and to forgive, and be forgiven. And from that truth, all of us will expand until there is enough space between the stars for every single one of us. I've got a feeling, and odd as it may sound, dialogue visits intellectuals and academics and people who are able to operate outside of mere feeling are one of the things, is one of the main things that has given me permission to stand here and feel that feeling is enough. And that space granted to a woman like me is a gift I cannot repay, but will try. And I hope that that continues to be the light.
Megan and Courtney and Gabby for those beautiful meditations. Um, I don't actually have a beautiful meditation because I'm, I'm the shill in this group. Uh, coming from the dialogue board, hoping to convince you that you want to give us some money. <laughs> Which you can do by going to the auction site and bidding on one of our items, or I actually discovered last night, you can just go and give us money on that auction site. <laughs> you don't even have to buy anything. <clears throat> so my, uh, my remarks are titled, When it absolutely, positively has to be in dialogue. Um, which is based on an ad for something that I don't even remember what it is. Was it Federal Express? Okay, it was FedEx. Uh, and I want to talk about a little bit of my own experiences with dialogue and why I see it as continuing to, to add a lot of value in a very crowded Mormon studies menu right now. My first interactions with dialogue were with social issues, specifically the priesthood ban, which was still fresh in my mind when I came to BYU as a new freshman in 1984. I was upset. The first thing that gave me comfort was Eugene England's essay, The Mormon Cross, in which he framed the ban on African Americans holding the priesthood as a horrible and inexplicable requirement along the lines of Abraham being asked to sacrifice his son. This was an approach that was completely faithful. It accepted all of the fundamental positions of the church about Abraham, about modern revelation, and even about the priesthood doctrine. But at the same time, it called into question everything that I thought I knew. I had never experienced the gospel in this way before, and it was exhilarating. The more involved I became in dialogue, the more I understood that almost everything about the journal conspired to produce this sense of exhilaration. And that from its inception, dialogue has created a space for articles, discussions, reflections, and, well, dialogue about important social issues. Uh, and it's a discussion that could exist nowhere else. The reasons for this have shifted over the years, but it's been true from the first issue to the most recent one that I just got in my mailbox three days ago, which I brought to show you. Let's start at the beginning. I've actually been spending a lot of time this month uh, rereading the early issues of dialogue. I, I went through and, and downloaded 50 years of dialogue onto my Microsoft Surface with annotatable PDFs, and I've been annotating the heck out of them. Um, and it's, it's probably why that particular machine was invented. But uh, from the very beginning of dialogue, it has been the case that uh, they have published things that nobody else would or could publish. Very little scholarship in the world of 1966, which was the year that both Dialogue and I were born. Uh, very little of it dealt with Mormon, Mormon views on social issues. Uh, very little writing in the Mormon world was scholarly uh, in a way that could explore important social issues. In its first five years of publication, Dialogue dealt with, maybe six years, dealt with things like Mormon participation in politics, Mormon responses to pornography, changing family dynamics among Mormons, Mormonism in the Vietnam War, Mormons who were part of Watergate, uh, and the definitive set of articles on the, by, by uh, people like Lester Bush and Armand Moss, who's, who's here with us today, on the priesthood doctrine and uh, the role of African Americans in the church. Many of these articles were peer-reviewed scholarship, but not all of them. Some of them were interviews with important national figures, 
And during this time, Mormonism invented, or I'm sorry, Dialogue invented the Mormon personal essay, which gave readers an entirely new lens on these important issues, such as the one that I encountered with Gene England's magnificent essay, The Mormon Cross. During these early years, Dialogue was really the only place that anybody could read about these issues. Mormonism just wasn't a large enough subculture for its take on social issues to become uh, something that drew significant attention from scholarly journals. And the only other venues for discussing Mormonism were either owned by the church, like the Improvement Era or Deseret Books, or they were like Covenant and Bookcraft, which are now Deseret Books, so dependent on Orthodox members for their sales that they uh, could not risk alienating their core audience with anything even slightly controversial. The dialogue success opened up new markets. It was soon followed by Sunstone, Exponent 2, and the Journal of Mormon History, all of which began publication in 1974. But even as the field for unfiltered academic discussions of Mormonism grew more crowded, Dialogue remained indispensable because of a com uh, combination of attributes that really can't be found anywhere else. Uh, dialogue, for example, remained one of the very few Mormon periodicals William, willing to publish long-form academic essays on almost any topic related to Mormonism. It didn't confine itself to a discipline. As a matter of fact, in this middle period, late 1980s, most of the 1990s, uh, dialogue played a crucial role in the development of Mormon feminism at this time. You just take a, a gander at the table of contents to the new uh, Mormon Feminism Essential Writings uh, collection, one of whose editors, Rachel Hunt-Steenbeck, is here, uh, from Oxford University Press. We find more than half of the work in that crucial 1990s period coming from dialogue, including such lengthy and vital academic essays as Janice Allred's Towards a Mormon Theology of God the Mother, Cecilia Conchar-Farr's Dancing for the Doctrine, Levina Fielding and Anderson's work on ecclesiastical abuse, and Lynn Matthews Anderson's Towards a Feminist Interpretation of Latter-day Saint Scripture. These are, as the editors point out, the defining moments of Mormon feminism and they could not have occurred without dialogue. The dialogue has never been simply an academic journal, which is one of its great strengths. From the first issues, it included poetry, fiction, personal essays, interviews, sermons, and reviews. That's actually a little bit of a lie. Uh, first short story was published in its fifth issue. Until then, it included just all of those things except for short fiction. Um, this diversity of different kinds of voices allows it to treat important social issues from many perspectives at once. Uh, and I can't even think of a better example, because I was sitting trying to find a good example of this when this issue came, which I just think is a remarkable showcase of what dialogue can do. In this issue, you have a, a focus of a large portion of the issue on LGBT issues. You have a, a rigorous, peer-reviewed, uh, empirical study of youth suicide rates among Mormons. You've got a personal essay from uh, Christian Harrison, a good friend of mine. Are you here, Christian? He's around somewhere. Uh, who is uh, an out, faithful, gay Mormon man. And also from the mother of uh, uh, a, a gay Latter-day Saint. 
Then you've got selections from the Mama Dragon Story Project, photographs and essays. You've got your regular complement of short stories and poetry. You've got a roundtable discussion of the history of Exponent 2. And this all concludes with a marvelous sermon about the importance of inclusiveness. I will happily argue that there is nowhere in the world where all of these things could have appeared between the same covers. Dialogue still does things that nobody else does, and they're things that desperately need doing. In his wisdom, God has now given us an internet specifically designed so that anybody can say anything they want with no filters whatsoever. <laughs> Except that that's not quite true. There's just different kinds of filters. We now call them content filters. Uh, and they exist in the world of internet publishing as much as they existed in 1966. One of these filters is the filter of length. You can say anything you want about the church as long as you can fit it in 140 characters. Uh, even a blog post, average of about five to 600 words. Um, the venues that we have for publication are short form venues. Very few internet sources and very few uh, non-academic types of publications in Mormon studies are still willing to publish very long, empirical, peer-reviewed, intensely footnoted essays. Um, except those that are only willing to publish them in very specific niche areas, like history or like uh, sociology. You, 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 have, uh, you have two things that have happened in the modern publishing world. You've got, you've got the ability to say anything you want as long as it's short. And you have a lot of very hyper-disciplinary, hyper-focused publications. Dialogue remains something unique in this world. Some place that you cannot publish short pieces, long pieces, true pieces, fictional pieces, all having to do with Mormonism. Um, and you can take really, Boyd will kill me for this, but about as much space as you need. Okay, he'll tell you the short man. Over the next 50 years, the church is going to struggle with social issues that cannot be adequately discussed on Twitter, on Facebook, in the comment sections of BCC and other major Mormon blogs. Uh, this will include women's issues. LGBTQ issues, gender identity issues, issues arising from political realignment, we're about due for one of those, issues of medical technology, ethics, longer lifespans, do clones have souls? I can't wait for that one. <laughs> uh, issues arising from being an international church in a world with a very different power structure than we're used to now. Uh, what happens when the place where the church is headquartered isn't the biggest kid on the block. These are the kinds of things that are going to require a lot of serious discussion, a lot of serious analysis, creativity, personal voices, scholarship, and I believe with all my heart that dialogue will be an important part of those conversations for the next 50 years. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Dialogue Podcasts. 
in honor of our 50th anniversary jubilee. If you enjoy listening, please consider becoming a subscriber to Dialogue by visiting dialoguejournal.com or supporting us with a donation. Thank you.